But we do have a guest on the line this evening. Dr. Linda Mayer of Universities South Africa does actually want to speak to us, thank goodness, about the achievements of Professors Pageng of the University of Cape Town, Vilagazi of Witwatersrand, and Mahrwala of Johannesburg, who respectively have been promoted or have achieved global positions and recognition in their chosen realms. And really the question that we want to engage a little bit further and deeper is the health of higher education in this country if these three global recognitions are anything to go by and how investable still despite the challenges which are well documented in the country higher education in south africa is perhaps a conversation with university south africa will help us better understand the true meaning of these accolades without further ado linda good evening thank you so much for indulging us at such short notice but equally this are or these are rather very exciting times for university south africa and higher education at large in the country indeed uh, and thank you so much for the opportunity let's start with professor chalidzi marwala i mean he's a scientist we know what his exploits have been here at the University of Johannesburg, and he's really done much to improve the ranking of the university, both locally and domestically. But tell us more about what this means now. The United Nations University is now going to Tokyo, Japan, to head up this institution. Just very briefly, on the surface of the thing, what does this mean for South Africa, and what is the response to higher, I mean, to to University of South Africa on this accolade? Because it really is something quite to marvel at. Indeed, and the position which Professor Marwala has been appointed to, which he will take office on the 1st of March 2023 for a five-year contract, really is referred to, although it's the United Nations University, it really is considered the university of the world. So there is no higher vice-chancellor position or principal really globally that somebody could aspire to this is a huge endorsement for for the for the credentials of our academic leadership in south africa and also understanding that this position is appointed by the united nations uh, united nations secretary general directly for outstanding work um, which obviously professor marwala is well known for the for, uh, being the 4ir mm. uh, professor but, um, yes, outstanding achievement. How, how else could we really describe this as this is the most incredible honor and the highest accolade that any of our vice, vice chancellors have ever achieved? I mean, you're talking about the position and just how august it is. I mean, UNU, United Nations University, is a global think tank with 13 institutes in some 12 countries. That's like running some serious multilateral institution. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a university and then some. Indeed, but we, it is a, a university and then some, but we must also understand that, uh, you know, if we reflect on what Prof. Marwala has done for UJ, for the University of Johannesburg, to really taking them from, you know, real obscurity to one of the most uh, leading universities in South Africa, and also uh, climbing global rankings exponentially. I mean, he is, he is a, obviously an engineer um, and a very thoughtful human being, but also 
a, a credible and outstanding academic. The fact that he goes to Japan, which in many respects is a technological center and a great place for one with his skills and interests. I mean, he is he holds a doctorate anyway in artificial intelligence and engineering from the University of Cambridge. That's as high as it gets. What is the loss to South Africa, or what is the gain to South Africa with his being positioned there? Well, obviously it is a loss in terms of, of the individual leaving South Africa, but we must understand what this means for the credibility of our academics and being chosen to lead this prestigious uh, institution. And I have no doubt that Prof. Marwala, in his new position, will certainly advocate for for the South African academic system and also for the credibility of, of our academics. So, yes, a huge loss in the individual, but on the global stage, uh, an enormous win for us in terms of the scope and the landscape that will be opening up for us, for opening up for us in this in this global environment. Earlier on this evening, we had a conversation with a lady who runs a 4IR skills development center, and she more she 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 made comment of the fact that South Africa, from a policy development perspective and implementation, we are lagging behind with the rest of the world in the context of 4IR, and perhaps his leaving doesn't bode well in that regard. How can we ensure that whilst we have lost him because of his presence now going to Japan, we can leverage his presence where he is and the access points to which we as a nation could have through him, given the fact that, I mean, I mentioned earlier on that Prof. Mahrwala is now the head of a global think tank of 13 institutes in 12 countries. How, how can South Africa help climb the 4IR space, given, I mean, he's also the presidential 4IR panel chairperson? Yes, I, th- I think, um, you know, when we have the 4IR discussion and, and what it is that we can do, we must, uh, Songheza, obviously pragmatically reflect on where we are as a country and also that 4IR is a concept um, and, and really what we speak about now is this new technology moment and how we equip from a foundational level, uh, from a university level, our students to be able to compete within a global, a global sphere. So as Prof. Marwala obviously leaves and, and he's established this uh, center at, at UJ, you must understand that he's also opened a vast uh, array of relationships for us with, with mm-hmm. Harvard and the University of Berkeley. So all of these international relationships and footprints he has already established. And, and I want to believe that, you know, the leadership that, that he has created and, and capacitated during his time, not only at UJ, but within science fora, within the, the broader landscape of the university leadership, that he will leave a legacy that, that will be built on really, and that this is just a, a platform. We don't have to stand back as a country. Our, our academics are leading uh, globally in many areas. Our scientists uh, that played an instrumental role in, in many domains during the COVID-19 period. So what it is that we need to do is obviously ensure that, that the foundation that he has built, that those, those are strengthened and that the leadership capacity that he has built obviously remains his legacy and that the capacitation continues with what it is that, that he built and put so much energy into. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about another high honour that sees Zeblon Villagazi welcomed as a fellow of the prestigious Royal Society in the UK. Counting among its rank, he joins Robert Broom, Philip Valentine, 
Tobias, Basil Sconeland, Frank Nabarro, and we're talking about serious names here, Nobel Peace Prize winner Arden Klug. Um, but of course, can we not say Albert Einstein, Charles Darwin, and Dorothy Hodgkin, together with Stephen Hawking. Of those names, among them, Zeblon Villagazi, that's as high as it gets in just about any sphere of the intellectual discourse. Absolutely. And and Professor Villacardi is one of those un, unsung gems within the within the academy. He is you know, he's a nuclear physicist and very few people knew about him before he was appointed as the vice chancellor at the University of the Witwatersrand. But an esteemed intellectual, thoughtful human being and certainly somebody that uh, that needed this international recognition. Not that he is not known on the international stage, but to be honored as a fellow really is an exceptional achievement for any scholar. And uh, we, are, we are deeply honored by, by this incredible award that he, that he has uh, achieved. And obviously you spoke about the, the names of Charles Darwin and uh, Stephen Hawkins, but, um, you know, we, we must also remember that, that the... That the deep scientists um, and Nobel Prize winners also are, are within this domain. And certainly Professor Villacazi is not off the cards at all for further accolades. And who knows, he might be a Nobel Prize winner in the not-too-distant future for the incredible work that he's also doing. Let's talk about the value of sciences in the development of the world. I mean, the three two gentlemen and the one lady, Prof. Parking, about whom we'll speak right now, are scientists, one in technology engineering specifically, one in the nuclear sciences space as a nuclear physicist, one as a pure mathematician. Could we just perhaps spend just even the next two to three minutes talking still, or rather especially, about the value of the STEM curriculum and how especially important it is in today's very technological world, Prof.? Indeed. So, so importantly, this really is where the world is going. And we need to see in terms of job categories that are expanding exponentially. The STEM, cell, the STEM uh, domains, certainly, and, and information technology, engineering, all of these critical foundational uh, programs that really are the backbone of, of economic growth and stability is uh, where this time and investment is, is so critically necessary. People, you know, underestimate the value of pure mathematicians, but Professor Pakeng also has a strong uh, background in, in education. So it's really about the accessibility of education that she has foregrounded. So all of these individuals, uh, Professor Marwala, Pakeng, um, and, and Professor Vilakazi, all of them have invested immense time in ensuring the credibility of the graduates that we are producing. And these institutions, uh, which, which the three professors lead, certainly you know, have climbed exponentially in global rankings because of the investment and the, the investment in the programs, in the STEM, STEM cell uh, programs within their, with the STEM programs within their institutions. STEM cell obviously being one of the scientific uh, domains. Yes. But, um, yes. So, um, 
Yes, I, I mean, it is It is really the foreground of the importance of this. They, in their institutions, invested incredibly in ensuring that those domains are well capacitated, have leading academics to drive the programs. So really bringing a seriousness to the academy around uh, the implementation and credibility of those programs. We're going to move on from Prof. Vilagaze right now and celebrate the deputy mother of all students at the University of Cape Town, Mamokheti Kang, following her being elected as chair of International Alliance of Research Universities. International Alliance of Research Universities is a network of 11 international research-intensive universities from nine countries across the globe, established in 2006. Now an African woman, South African woman especially, is heading this up. Let's talk about the need still for just research-intensive universities. And I think just before we talk about Pakeng herself, universities are now operating more and more, and I think this is just a signal of the times in the commercial space, as good as that is. But first and foremost, universities are centers where knowledge is really and thoroughly questioned and engaged, and that is through research. This platform, therefore, International Alliance of Research Universities, being in research intensive, is probably just ensuring that universities remain universities, primary centers for research and knowledge harvesting. Indeed. So we, we must understand that we sit with particular challenges around accessibility to education in South Africa, and we've seen that a lot of money has been invested in the teaching uh, and learning domains. So we've detracted from the research agenda into being able to ensure that there's uh, our students through MISFAS, um, et cetera, and through university block grants that our undergraduate students are really taken care of. And this has been a successful project in transforming uh, the academy. But certainly our research agenda has suffered, and we've seen that there's you know, been budget cuts to the NRF and uh, cuts from the private sector in terms of investment into research and innovation uh, since 2018, a significant drop in that. So critically important for us to start focusing on the importance of the international research agenda and our space as South Africa in claiming our, our domain and uh, leadership role on the African continent around the, le the leadership and research agenda. The space and role of universities in the challenges that the nation faces, I think, is pronounced now more than any time in recent history, certainly, given the fact that there seemingly is a dearth of scholarship in spaces of leadership, and this cuts across the board in private sector and in the public sector. Of course, it's more pronounced in the public sector. And perhaps there then becomes more scope for the Marwalas, the Vilagazis, and the Pakengs to wet when they say whatever they do say, it is listened to, obviously, but because also it has global reach, and this might be a way to just steer South Africa's ship back onto calmer waters. Yes, I, I you know, this, this, is, this is not a new discussion for us around the stability of the research agenda. And certainly when our leadership um, and Professor Pakeng in, in her role as the research chair for this international alliance uh, of research universities and driving the agenda, um, certainly, you know, we've always looked to the West 
to find solutions. But we've always said that solutions, you know, for, for us on the African continent, the research agenda must bring, must bring solutions to our local context. But certainly we are mindful that we are operating within this global context and our contribution. Certainly, uh, if we look at the contributions of uh, Professor Karim and, and many of the leading scientists and researchers that, that are located within our universities and attached to our universities, certainly to foreground the leadership role of, of this chairpersonship um, certainly will bring immense credibility to, to advancing our agenda uh, for standing on the global stage. Let's move the conversation more closer to home, specifically where you are now. University of South Africa, thank goodness, this is probably the most stable year academically and even administratively since 2019. I mean, uh, since 2018, rather, because... No, since 2019, because 2020 and 2021 were just hellish years for anybody in administration of higher education. Tell us now about the sense of calm that has finally come across where then at least we don't have these coronavirus restrictions in place, albeit coronavirus itself is still around us, but at least the sense of normalcy in South African universities at large. So yes, it is it is a much more stable environment and primarily this is because we we have found a solution for our our poor and working class families for children uh, and you know young adults to enter the university system. So certainly this perennial challenge that we had around uh, not being able to access the universities um, has has brought great stability. But we are still sitting with our challenge around our missing middle students. We're working hard to find a solution for that, and, and we are hopeful that government will pronounce their new policy within the next two to three months. But certainly... Our, our big challenge is, is still around 20% of our cohort of students. We have approximately 1.1 million students in the public university sector. And certainly for 20% of our students that are in this missing middle category, we are still finding solutions for them. As University of South Africa, we've raised just on 1.1 billion rand, mm. which has assisted 27,000 students with their tuition fees. But it's just a drop in the ocean. And then, obviously, um, Songeza, you, you are aware of our um, historic debt, mm. and we are asking organizations, please, to assist with that, because we're sitting at 16.5 billion rand in debt that is owed to the public university sector. And certainly, you know, although universities are doing everything they can to to stabilize that debt, it, it's expensive for us. It's costing the university sector $1.2 billion to service that debt, which certainly, you know, is attracting from other programs that we could be investing and in. And universities university. are not in the business of making money, frankly. Well, they are in the business of, um, you know, just being going concerns. I think that's the, the critical thing. Sure. But you're quite right in your observation and your opening, uh, you know, comments on the subject that we have a much more stable university environment that we certainly have had in recent years. Do South Africans understand the implication of this 16.5 billion rand, which is debt, which remains... And, and and I think I need to understand it in this way. It's not just 16.5 billion rand that needs to be paid. It represents many thousands of students who cannot move on with their own and respective contributions 
to the South African economy to take care and deal in, for instance, the poverty, the hunger, the social challenges on the ground, simply because their skills cannot be formally adopted, simply because they are unable to pay that debt. So the knock-on effect of this debt not being paid has got some deep social issues or is stifling the economic and social progress that could otherwise be made if all of these people were then absorbed into the mainstream. Yeah, so we're speaking about 120,000 students oh, that are unable to graduate. Yeah, it it is um it's it's very unfortunate, but um you know, as I said it's a drop in the ocean, but we certainly are not going to give up on this until we found a solution for every single one of these uh, students to be able to graduate. Other than businesses really just dropping money, what are the obvious mechanisms which perhaps going forward South Africa has to contemplate in terms of how to deal with this crisis of how inaccessible education is? And of course, NISFA says that, but it's not going to pay everything for everyone. And the net effect is student debt. What are the models which universities in the country are grappling with us, trying to engage as possible solutions to make this going forward less of an issue? So with the um, commission that the minister has set up, we're just waiting for the report now. But certainly, you know, this is nothing new for us. From the Hera Commission um, that suggested the fee-free higher education and income contingency loans so that when somebody, you know, is employed gainfully, that they pay back marginally a small amount um, in terms of affordability uh, to, to pay back the, the bursary that is given. And uh, certainly, you know, if we look at models like America, because we need to look at the sustainability of, of the modeling. But in America, for, uh, in Australia, for example, if you leave the country, um, if you immigrate, government recoups the full funding of your studies that they've invested in you that you must pay back into the funds. So it really is, we must understand that when somebody enters a public university, half of their tuition fees are already paid by taxpayers. So really because the universities get that in the form of block grants. And we must have a sustainable solution so that we can advance access, so that numbers are increased. We know, we know that in terms of the NDP, we need to have 1.6 million students in the higher education sector, and the private higher education sector is growing exponentially. They, they equate 20% of the higher education market as it currently stands, and they are growing steadily at approximately 5% per annum. So it is a systemic issue, but the big thing for us is around financial stability and ensuring whomever wants to access higher education that there is funding available for them and that the repayment model around the sustainable framing and frameworks that we create, that those certainly are an enabling uh, platform because, you know, we exclude people if we look at the NISFAS grants. It's individuals that qualify from households up to 350,000 uh, rand, and arbitrarily with one rand we cut. You know, if, if somebody owns uh, his household, there's 350,000 and one rand, mm. then they're excluded from the system. Yeah, yeah. So really, and, and for households that earn between 350 and 600,000, it's very difficult for them to get student loans, and often there are four, you know, four children in that household. So it's, it's about getting a fair and equitable system that has access for, for for as many people as possible 
because higher education, if we look at the youth unemployment rates, and this is when people speak about why must we invest in higher education, why is the NISFAS model there? So pragmatically, what we need to see is that youth unemployment, as it currently stands, is at uh, just over 63 point, well, it's at 63.9%. But if we look at the graduate unemployment rates for degrees, it's only 12.5%. Diplomas, 23.2%, and higher certificates at 36.5%. So the proof is in the statistics. We can see exponentially that that investment really largely mitigates the impact of youth unemployment once somebody has a degree or a diploma or a higher certificate. Certainly, I believe you there proof is in the statistics. We'll continue the conversation on another day. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Linda Mayer, University of South Africa. Thank you. 2149.